1 Samuel chapter 13. You make your way there, and again, I'm not big on titling my messages, but I suppose I would title this one, you know, An Anatomy of a Crash. That's probably a a good example for it. Um, You know, every time there's some sort of a crash or some sort of a disaster, there's there's an investigation that follows it. Uh, Most notably for us, I I think most recently, you guys remember the Asiana Airlines crash at uh, San Francisco Airport. That was back in in July, um, July 6th of uh, last year. And, uh, you know, here this plane coming in, coming from Korea on final approach to San Francisco Airport, and and just a a catastrophic crash there. There was 181 people who were injured on board the plane. Uh, there were, unfortunately, 12 people who were injured critically, and tragically, there were three people who lost uh, their life. And there was an investigation into that crash, and they wanted to see, you know, what, was the, what, what caused this thing. And what they found in investigating it, that there was four contributing factors that led to the crash. There, were, there was a combination of pilot error, pilot fatigue, uh, inadequate training and an inadequate uh, equipment in the system. There was a uh, an auto problem with their auto throttle, and if you if you're familiar with the crash, they basically came in too slow, and they stall. They didn't stall, but they lost a lot of altitude very quickly, and so they hit the seawall instead of you know making it to the runway. And so these four contributing factors were what in fact caused the crash. And it's interesting as you look at the contributing factors, and here's my point, that there was, there was a couple of the, the factors that, that happened, you know, immediately in the events immediately leading up to the crash, but there was also some factors that contributed to this crash that, that happened months or even years before the crash occurred. And that's significant because as we come to 1 Samuel chapter 13, it's a case study of an impending crash. What we're going to see, King Saul has been appointed to be the king of Israel, but he is, he's got a crash that's coming. And what happens here in chapter 13 is just as the Asiana crash having four contributing factors, what we see here in chapter 13 is that there's also four contributing factors to, to the, the crash of Saul's kingdom. And uh, lots for us to learn here today through Saul's mistakes that we can grow in as well. So 1 Samuel chapter 13, pick it up in verse 1, and it says, Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the mountains of Bethel, and a thousand were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin, and the rest of the people he sent away, every man to his tent. Verse 3, And Jonathan attacked the garrison, the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard, it, heard of it, and Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews here. Now it starts off by saying Saul reigned one year and then when he had reigned two years. And you're like, that's kind of, uh, it's kind of weird the way that's structured. And, and, and in fact, those that, that understand Hebrew say that this is confusing. It's all Hebrew to me. I wouldn't know. But even the people that speak Hebrew find this sentence structure confusing in the sense that there's some debate on what exactly they're saying here in verse one. And, and the, the, the most consensus 
uh, and the thing that makes the most sense to me is what they're saying is that Saul reigned for, for one year and then he reigned for an extra year. In other words, what they're saying is that you know Saul reigned there for a year. It speaks of the events that happened in chapter 12 and then now the events in chapter 13 are, are those happening in the second year. Um, and, uh, and so that's going to factor in here uh, in a minute because what we're going to see is that, you know, Saul basically has had plenty of time uh, to do something and he really hasn't been, you know, doing much of anything. As a matter of fact, that's our first point if you want to write it down. Saul was complacent. First factor in the anatomy of the crash of Saul's kingdom, Saul was complacent. You see, when Saul defeated the Ammonites back in chapter 11, What we read there is that he had gathered an army of 330,000 men to do that job. And, and now what happens is we read, it's, it's some time has transpired, and after mobilizing these men and after defeating the Ammonites, well, he, he sent 327,000 of them home. He only kept 3,000. He himself kept 2,000. He gave 1,000 to his son, Jonathan. Um, we're going to actually read more about Jonathan next week. As a matter of fact, you're really not going to want to miss the message next week because Jonathan is a man's man. Jonathan is the guy that gets it done. He, he is a, a guy that walks with the Lord, that trusts the Lord, that's getting about the Lord's business. I mean, he's the guy, if you want to you know, raise your, your sons to be like someone, he's the guy that you would want them to be like. And you wonder, gee whiz, you know, it's too bad that the father's not more like the son in this case because Saul is, is complacent whereas his son is ready to, to do battle. And so, you know, again, they defeated the Ammonites. They had 330,000 men. Saul sent 327,000 of them home. And what I want you to keep in mind, too, is that this was a time when they still had lots of enemies in the land. They still had lots of work to do. They're still surrounded by the Philistines, the, the Amalekites, the Ammonites, the Moabites. I mean, they, they have, you know, the termites. They got, they got people still that they got to go do business with. And Saul sends these guys home. See, God had commanded Moses that he was to go into the land and possess it. And he, he commanded him this, and the command came with a promise. That, listen, you got work to do. And, and not only do you have work to do, not only do I expect you to go and fight the enemy, but, but, but what God said to him was, look, I'm going to go before you. I'm going to drive out your enemies. <clears throat> we need to understand as Christians that God has called us to a fight. Yes, his work of salvation is the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf and that there's nothing we can do to attain salvation, but God has called us to a fight. And our fight is to to follow after the Lord and to serve the Lord. It's not just about, you know, what's your testimony? Well, I'm saved and I'm going to heaven. Okay, great. You're saved. You're going to heaven. What's in between? Your entire life is what's in between. And if it was just about being saved and going to heaven, well, then you'd get saved and, you know, you'd be out. And that would be done. But God saves you and he leaves you here because you've got a work to do. And there's a fight that we have to fight. And a lot of people, as, as followers of Christ, <clears throat> their testimony is, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, but what are you doing right now? Well, metaphorically speaking, I'm sitting on the couch eating bonbons. I'm not doing, I'm not doing jack nothing. You know, and a lot of people aren't doing anything in serving the Lord and in fighting the fight that he's called them to fight. That's exactly what's going on here with Saul. 
And we have these clues that we, that we read about here which tell us that that's what's going on with Saul. First of all, rather than press the attack after the victory with the Ammonites, you know, he, it says he chose 3,000 men for himself. And then he, he you know, generously gave 1,000 to his son. He kept 2,000 for himself. Who'd he keep for Israel? None. You know, and, and so, he, you know, Israel had 330,000 fighting men, but he chose 3,000 for himself, and he's like, eh, Israel doesn't get any. We'll just send the rest home. <clears throat> so he's complacent in that regard. The second indication, clue, that we see that Saul's complacent is that fully two years have passed since he fought the, the, the Ammonites, and what's he been doing? Well, he hasn't been doing nothing. You know, and, and, and the reason we know that he hasn't been doing nothing, if you look in the next chapter, there's a section, you know, the scripture there where basically Jonathan is seeing that the enemy is there. Jonathan's like, somebody needs to do something about this guy. And where's his dad? He's sitting under a pomegranate tree. He's not doing anything. And it's so bad, Samuel actually, or Jonathan actually has to sneak away. He can't even tell his dad he's going to fight the enemy, probably for fear that his dad would stop him. Hey, we're, we're, all just, we're all just sitting eating bonbons right now, son. We're not, we're not doing that. Don't, don't, go, don't go fighting the enemy. Don't go doing what God told you to do. Be lazy with the rest of us. You can make us look bad. For Christ. Some of you guys work with guys like this. You know, you go, you get a job, and you, we, you know, you're working hard. I remember I got stationed at a particular fire station. I was, I was just working overtime, and, and I showed up to work, and the guys there were, were they're pissed at me. And, and they're like, you're going to make us look bad, man. Just slow down. Relax. I'm like, you mean work? You don't want me to work? Is that the, the deal here? And some people are like that. So, so Saul, he's, he's certainly complacent in the fact that he hasn't gotten business, busy fighting against the enemy. And, and, and again, Jonathan takes the initiative. That's the, that's the third indication. Point of application for us when we talk about being complacent. Listen, like Saul and the Israelites, we also face an enemy, don't we? Peter said this, he said, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Now, he says there, be sober, be vigilant. And that word vigilant, it means to watch with expectancy. That's the literal idea of that word vigilant, that I'm watching with expectancy. The, the antithesis of this, the contrast of this, would be, you know, being lax, lackadaisical, and, and, and being indifferent. And, and so you're either watching with expectancy or you're being indifferent to it. I'll illustrate it this way. Guys, you'll appreciate this. My wife, she, um, you know, occasionally, she, she, hey, let's watch a movie. All right. So, so what is, ladies, what kind of movies do my wife want to watch? She wants a chick flick all day long, right? And it's a, oh, and he, she, she loves him, and oh, he's doing this, and you know, whatever. And you know, I, I, husbands love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. So I understand that, that you know, I've, she's got to be able to watch, no, not all the time. I get to watch, you know, my Arnold Schwarzenegger movies or whatever it is, but you know, she gets her chick flick from time to time, and I just, that's the cross that I die on, you know, I just, okay, fine. Now, am I watching that thing attentively? Yes or no, man? No, I'm not watching it attentively. As a matter of fact, I probably have my phone in my hand. I'm probably checking my email. I'm probably looking at Facebook. 
I, you know, there, there is not any vigilance in the way that I'm watching that movie. I, rather, I'm lackadaisical and I'm, and I'm, you know, indifferent to the thing. Conversely, she's that way when I'm watching, you know, whatever. Oh, honey, check this out. You know, this guy took this Pinto and he put a V8 in it. And it's like God, you know, and she's, she could care less, you know. And so, um, actually, I went to school with a guy who put a V8 in a Pinto. It was crazy. Um, the only time a Pinto has ever been cool in the history of all mankind. So, um, anyway, the, the, we're, we're supposed to watch with expectancy. Uh, and we're supposed to resist the enemy. This is what, what Peter says. Resist him steadfast in the faith. Now, th- this means to set yourself again. It means to withstand. It means to resist. It means to oppose Right? And, and these are all the things that Saul is supposed to be doing with the enemies there in the promised land, but he's being lackadaisical. He's not getting with the business to do what he needs to do. And, and now Jonathan does, and you see that this wakes the enemy up, and this happens in our lives, doesn't it? You know, the enemy, he, he'll leave you alone for the most part if you're not messing with him. It's been said if, if you haven't had a head-on collision with the enemy, it might be because you're going in the same direction. And, and what happens is the moment you step up and decide, I'm going to follow after the Lord obediently and I'm going to fight this faith, this, my faith, I'm going to fight the fight that God's given to me, I'm going to be vigilant and I'm going to resist the enemy. Well, as soon as you resist the enemy, you are a marked man. You are a marked woman. All hell literally is going to break loose because the enemy is going to come against you. He's going to attack you. We used to joke with, with guys that would be raised up and would become deacons because it seemed like the moment we brought somebody up on this platform and laid hands on them and prayed for them to, to, to present them to the church as a deacon, everybody would be like, oh, dude, you're in trouble now. Because they would get attacked by the Lord. I mean, it was crazy, the attacks that were coming. Now, I know, all you future guys we're going to come to and ask to be a deacon, you're going to be like, heck no, I don't want to do that. And that's what people do. They, they, they're like, I don't want to be attacked by the enemy. The moment you step up, man, that's when the attack comes. Brenda and I, when we were raising our kids, we, um, we were always very careful um, about certain things. And one of the things that made, it, it made our top 10 list, our top five list, it was probably in our, t- yeah, I guarantee you, it was our top three things of most importance where our kids were concerned, and that had to do with the, with the company that they kept, their friends. We're very attentive to who were their friends and who weren't going to be their friends. And the reason for that is because the Bible says, don't be misled, bad company corrupts good character, 1 Corinthians 15, 33. And so we were very careful but with our kids about who their company was going to be. And, and, and this was something that we were not um, lackadaisical about. It was something that we were not lazy about, but rather it, was something that, it wasn't something we were complacent about, but it was something that we were very strongly attentive to. And, and this, you know, it's important. And we would see from time to time parents that didn't want the fight with their kids, that, that weren't going to be you know, attentively diligent, but rather were complacent, they wouldn't give that attention to to their kids' friendships, and inevitably, there were problems because bad company would lead their kids uh, astray. And and, and, and why wasn't that they, or why was it that they were complacent? It's because it was too much work to, to, for the alternative. So, so Saul's complacent here. That's one of the first things we see. Now, another aspect of Saul's complacency, 
And another point of application for us as we consider this idea of being complacent. Well, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, he said, you have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery, but I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, this is Jesus Christ speaking. Now, the the whole Bible is Jesus speaking. I mean, he's the word of God that became flesh and dwelt among us. So, you know, you can argue that every word in the Bible is the words of Jesus. But, But this was Jesus in the flesh talking about, look, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Now, he's not literally saying, if you've got a problem with pornography, to take your pocket knife out and cut your eye out. It's what's known as hyperbole. The idea, what Jesus is doing is he's exaggerating to make a point. And his point is this, is that you can't be complacent in your life where sin is concerned. You have to fight against this temptation towards complacency. And I just have a very simple question for you just to jot down, have you take it home, take a walk with it this week. Here's the question, is there any area in your life where you're being complacent? Are you complacent in any particular area in your life where you're just sort of winking at sin, you're just sort of sweeping it under the rug? Under the rug, Doug, man, we just don't have to deal with that thing right now. Let's just not look there. Just don't want to look very closely. Are you complacent in, in an area in your life? And so this is, this is one of the factors leading to the crash of Saul's kingdom. He's complacent. Another factor that led to the crash of his kingdom is that Saul took credit for his son's faith. Saul took credit for his son's faith. Look at, we'll pick it up, verse 3. It says, And Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. Some of you guys work for a guy like this. You kill yourself to get a project done, and then your boss blows the trumpet. Oh, look at what I just did, kind of thing. Well, this is Saul. Let let the Hebrews hear. Verse 4, now all Israel heard it and said that Saul had attacked a garrison. Was it Saul? It wasn't Saul. It was Jonathan. But they said Saul has attacked a garrison of the Philistines, and that Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines. In other words, when you attack the enemy, he's going to get provoked and, and, you know, go after you. And the people were called together to Saul at at Gilgal. So here's the deal. Saul took the credit for his son's faith. Now, again, what's Saul doing at this point? Well, he ain't doing anything. In the next chapter, he's going to be sitting under that pomegranate tree eating bonbons, not doing nothing. But yet, he's going to take the credit for, for, for his son's faith. And you say, okay, what's that got to do with me? I see all the time, and men are the primary culprits in this, but what I see is I see men that will they'll take the credit for the fact that their kids 
are walking with the Lord, that their kids are, you know, my kids are going to church and, you know, my kids are involved in, you know, this and that, and and that they'll want to take credit for that when really the truth is closer to the fact that mom's the one that took the initiative with that kid. Mom's the one who stood her ground and who said, we're going to do this. We need to do this. And what ends up happening is really the guy, rather than being a leader of his family, he's a reluctant participant. In fact, I'm going to take it a step further and say this, that some of you are here today, and it's, and it's really the reason you're here, if you're honest, it's because your wife was the one standing the ground saying, we need to go to church. And so really, the only, participant, the only participating action that you can claim credit for is that you drove the car. But the reason you're here is because of the faith of someone else. Because your wife was the one who said, we are going to go to church. No, we're not going to stay home and watch the football game. Honey, we got to go to church. What are, the kids got to go to church. And you're like, all right. And yet, you want to take the credit and say, oh, you know what, it's because of this. Now, from time to time, I'll get an angry email from somebody. And if I get an angry email over this, I'll just simply tell you, when you throw a rock in a pack of dogs, the one that yelps is the one that got hit. Okay? So if if I just offended you, I'm sorry. But sometimes the truth hurts. So, so, So the issue here is, you know, Saul is taking credit for somebody else's faith. It wasn't his faith. He was just sitting around. And some of us, we need, to, we need to really just come to Jesus right now and go, is my participation in this really more of an, <laughs> taking credit for the initiative somebody else did? Something else to think about when we talk about taking the credit for, for someone else's faith. You know, um, sometimes you can have somebody who, who, you know, you'll talk to them about their relationship with the Lord. And for me... You know, I've kind of stopped asking people if they're saved because there's a lot of people who think they're saved that they're not. I think the more fruitful, fruitful question is to say, you know, um, do you, you know, do you think you're going to heaven? Yeah, okay, why? Why do you think you're going to heaven? Because that gets to heart of what a person's belief system is because, you know, the issue is, is that, you know, it's not your works that are going to get you there and it's nothing else that's going to get you. There's only one thing that's going to get you to heaven and that's what have you done with Jesus Christ? He's either the one who died on the cross for your sins in your place and you're trusting in his completed work on the cross or, or you're trusting in a lie. And, 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 and so I'll get people, I'll go and I'll talk to them and, and I'll say, hey, listen, I, how, are you going to heaven? Yeah, how do you know you're going to heaven? And the answer might be, well, you know, because uh, I was raised in a Christian home and we went to church all the time when I was growing up. And, and my mom, just really religious, man. My mom prayed all the time. And, you know, my dad, we, you know, he served in the church. Okay, what about you? You know, well, you know, my, my grandfather, he was, my grandfather was a deacon at his church. Or my grandfather was an elder at his church. Okay, okay, but what about you? Because here's the deal. God doesn't have any grandchildren. He only has children. So, so the issue is you're not going to get to heaven on the coattails of someone else's faith. And you're like, well, wait a minute, Pastor Ted, doesn't the Bible say something about the unbelieving spouse being sanctified by the believing spouse? Yeah, but that's not talking about salvation. That, that, that idea of being sanctified, it's a, it's a matter of, look, they get, they get special front row seat 
is what that gets. They get, they get special treatment from the Lord. They're primed for salvation. But it's not talking about the unbelieving spouse is going to be saved through, through a believing spouse. So the, so the issue here is, is that, man, you can't take credit for somebody else's faith. You've got you've to determine, do I have a right relationship with the Lord based on I've trusted him? And, and, and here's what I would say, and I think that this is an important word from the Lord, that we need to understand that, that God is a loving, gracious, merciful God. He died on the cross for your sin in your place. And, and the Bible says that God so loved the world, he gave his son in this way. The Bible says that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. And you need to hear today that God loves you. He, he's not a celestial, you know, cosmic, mean guy. With, he's got the magnifying glass and you're the ant and he's just looking to fry you. That's not who God is. God loves you. He loves you with an unending love. And so when we talk about taking the credit for somebody else's faith, no, listen, the only sin that God cannot forgive is the sin of unbelief. That's the only sin that he can't forgive. And so for you today, it's a matter of answering the question, am, am, am I going to heaven? And if, if I say yes, then, then why do I say I'm going to heaven? Listen, is it because you've trusted Jesus Christ on the cross and, and dying for your sin? Is that, is that what you're... Because, listen, there, the Bible says there's nothing that you can do to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And the enemy might lie to you and he might get you to the place where, hey, listen, you know, it, it, you, you, you got to work harder to get God to be pleased with It's not about that. It's about I've trusted my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and now if he leads you into sin, having trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need to understand that God's grace isn't, it doesn't end there. It's not like God goes, oh, I was going to save you, but then you sinned. No, he, he, his, his love for you continues through that. Now, that's not a license to sin, but we need to understand that when we do sin, that, 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 that's when we need to run to the Lord even more and say, Father, forgive me, have mercy on me. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, the Bible says. Uh, that word confess means to agree with God. God is good and that he's, he's, he's died for our sins. And so is there an area in your life, something to write down, something to take a walk with? Is there an area in your life where, where you are taking credit for someone else's faith? Listen, it has to be our faith and, and, and that's it. And so Saul's, the factors in his impending crash, he was complacent. He took credit for his son's faith. And, and thirdly, Saul focused on his circumstances when he should have been focusing on God. Saul focused on his, on, on his circumstances. Look at verse 5. And we read there, uh, Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and people as, uh, as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and they encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, then the people hid in caves, in thickets, in rocks, in holes, and in pits. 
And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. And so what's happening here is everybody's starting to freak out. Everything's seeing, everyone's seeing what's going on. Now Saul's already sent 327,000 of them home. So he's already got a skeleton crew, and now the skeleton crew is going, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, you know, the enemy's coming against us now. We just poked a hornet's nest, and now they're all sneaking away. Some of them are, are, are like, we're out of here, we're going over to the, Jor- over the Jordan River, over the other side, you know, we'll see you guys later, good luck with that. You know, I'm, I, you know oh, my, my wife just texted me, she needs some help here, and I can't, I'm sorry, I wish I could stay and help you guys, you know, kind of, and they're all just sort of melting away. And, and, and so it says some of the Hebrews, they crossed over the Jordan. And then it says, as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal. And all the people followed him trembling. That's all the people who were left, which are not many. And then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. And so if it wasn't bad enough that everybody was starting to chicken out and go away, when they saw the enemy, now what's happening is people are chickening out even more because Samuel's not showing up when he said he was going to be there. And so now the circumstances are all the people who are looking, they're like, huge enemy force, and, and now, you know, gosh, Samuel's being delayed. And Saul's looking at all this, and he's freaking out, seeing all this stuff go down. And so Saul said in verse 9, Bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Huge sin. We'll look at that in our next point. But here, you know, our idea is that Saul is focusing on his circumstances. Perry Noble uh, wrote this in his book. He said, what gets our attention ultimately determines our direction. If we're constantly focused on our circumstances, we will be overwhelmed. See, because here's the thing, Samuel had cautioned Saul back uh, in chapter 12, in verse 24. And, and, and he told him there, he says, uh, he, he, as, he, as he anoints him king, this is his, his final words to him there as he, as he anoints him king, he says, listen, only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. See, the Bible says to us, Paul said much the same things. Philippians 4, 6, he said, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then he goes on to say that, And the God of all peace will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. See, the thing is, what happens is, as you go through your life, and you face a various, various trials, and you will, you're going to face trials, what God wants you to do is he wants you to be on the attack and to be fighting the enemy. And when you come up against a trial, he wants you to look back at a time when he was with you before, when he strengthened you. And so as you are making, your, you're, you're anxious about this trial, this, this thing that you're facing. But he says, make that known to God. Hey, help me with this trial, but do it with thanksgiving. What are you thanking him for? Well, the last time I faced a trial, you were faithful. And we're going to see David do this in a few chapters when he faces Goliath. David faces Goliath. Saul's the guy going, you can't do it. You can't do it. You can't do it. And he's like, hey, you know, when I, when I was a kid and I fought the lion or the bear, the Lord was with me. He helped me do it. He showed up. I killed the lion. I killed the bear. This seven-foot Philistine would just be like one of them. So what did he do? He was strengthened by his past wilderness experiences 
so that he could move forward. This, this for Saul, here's the thing. He's looking at all these circumstances, and, and Samuel's already warned him before. Look, when, you, when you're leading, you're going to come up against hardship, and you've got to remember this moment. You've got to remember God showing up, and you've got to remember what God has done for you. And see, what I see a lot of times in Christian circles is that you have older Christians who get complacent in their walk and they just, they stop moving forward and they just, their whole walk is now looking backwards. They live in the glory days of what they once did, but there's no freshness to their walk. There's no taking, you know, an, uh, concerted uh, steps of faith. And why is that? Well, because to look backwards doesn't require any faith at all. I'm just remembering what God has already done. It's, it's much like walking in the, by sight today. In fact, and in your life, if you spend all your time looking backwards, what's going to happen to you as your life moves forward and you're looking backwards? You're going to crash into something. You know? And, and, and so this, this is the idea here is that, look, Saul, he's focusing on all these circumstances when he's already been warned, don't focus on the circumstances. Focus on the one who's above the circumstances. There's a guy, guy says to, to, to another, hey, how are you doing? He's like, well, I'm all right under the circumstances. It's like, well, what are you doing under those? God is above our circumstances. The biggest mistake we can make when we're overwhelmed is to focus on the problem and not focus on the Lord. Turn uh, to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. Now, I'll set the stage for you. Basically, Jesus has brought his disciples across uh, the, the Sea of Galilee to, the, to the, the opposite shore there, and they're ministering to the people there, and Jesus miraculously feeds the people that are there with the fishes and uh, the loaves. And, uh, and so this has transpired, and now he's, he's sending the disciples on to the, to the next assignment. Verse 22, immediately... Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. Now, Jesus does this all the time in our lives. He sends, he sends us out to the work that he wants to do. Acts chapter 1, you know, Luke t- writing the book of Acts, and he says, in my former work, he's talking about the gospel of Luke, I told you about all that Jesus Christ began both to do uh, and to teach. And the implication of the word began is that Jesus' work continues. And that's what the book of Acts is all about. It's about the acts of the apostles. It's about the continuing work of Jesus Christ in and through his believers. His work continues today through you and through me. And what happens is that God will send us out. We read earlier in the Gospels where Jesus sends them out two by two. And it says that he sent them into every town where he himself was about to go. And so this is what Jesus does all the time. He'll send us out to a work that he's foreordained for us to do. He sends us to do something by faith in something that he's about to do. Now he sends us out before him. And so this is the idea, this is what's going on, and he sends these guys out, sends the multitude away, and verse 23, and when he had sent the multitude away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray, and now when evening came, 
He was alone there. Meanwhile, he sent the disciples out. They're going across the Sea of Galilee. They're going to the next work, which Jesus had told them to do, which he was going to join them in. Verse 24, But the boat that they're in, going to their next assignment, was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Geographically, in the Sea of Galilee, there's a, a, a huge landmass on the opposite side uh, there of the, of the Sea of Galilee, uh, and it, yeah, the land juts up, you know, thousands of feet. It's a couple of thousand feet it goes up, and then, you know, there's Jordan there, and there's, you know, the Golan Heights and all. And so what happens is the wind will whip down off of this huge height of, of landmass down onto the sea, and it turns it up. It comes, becomes very violent. The, winds can, or the, the way, winds can be very strong. The waves are very large. And, and the wind is blowing against the direction that they're going in. It's a perfect picture of what happens when we go on a venture of faith with God. Some of you have been there. Maybe some of you are there today when God calls you to do something and you're walking by faith and, and now all of a sudden the enemy comes against you. You're being attacked. You're being opposed. It's, you know, it's overwhelming. And this is what's going on with them. Boat in the middle of the sea tossed by the waves. Some of you are like, that's my life right there. That's a perfect verse for where I'm at. My boat's in the middle of the sea and I'm getting tossed by the waves. Now, in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, which tells us a lot, tells us that they were in this situation. Jesus left them in that situation for a while. And maybe today, you've been in this situation for a while, and you're thinking, don't you see God? Don't you care? He does. He sees. He's building your faith. And so the fourth watch of the night, he went to them walking on the sea, and when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled that, that word is a mild word in the English, but in the original language, it's very, they were freaking out. They're troubled, saying, it's a ghost, and they cried out for fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them, saying, be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And again, just the idea, sometimes, you know, we're in the midst of the trial, and we, we're crying out at the, the very thing that is God. We're like, this thing is freaking me out. God's like, it's me. Just chill. I'm doing a work here. And, and, uh, and so he says, don't be afraid. Verse 28, and Peter answered him. And he said, Lord, if it is, com- it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And so he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. He began to sink and he cried out saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and he caught him and he said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased and those who, then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him saying, truly you are the son of God. See, when Peter focused on Jesus, it was cool. Everything was fine. He was doing the impossible. He was walking on water when he focused on the Lord. But the moment he took his eyes off the Lord and started looking at his circumstances, that's when Peter began to sink. And we see a cycle of fear here. I'll stick it on the screen for you. Peter's cycle of fear. First of all, you've got reality, right? Peter saw the wind. And that's what happens for us in our cycle of fear. You're in a situation and then you're faced with reality. You're like, I got more month than money. Well, you know, my reality is that I can't tithe because, you know, here's my situation. And then there's the response. Peter feared. And, and reality and response are universal experiences. 
Every Christian goes through the confrontation of reality and the, and the logic. You wouldn't be normal if you didn't have the response of being afraid. That's, that's normal for everybody, no matter what your situation, no matter what your circumstance. When you're in a bad circumstance, you go, oh, there's reality and I'm, my response is I'm afraid. Now, what should happen in that moment is that we trust the Lord. Peter doesn't do this. And neither did Saul. And oftentimes, neither do we. We take our eyes off the Lord, and what do we put them on? Put them on our circumstances, right? And so we're focused on our circumstances. And then what happens, the result? When you focus on your circumstances, you sink. That's exactly what happens to Peter. Now, the next two steps that Peter takes are not steps that Saul took. Saul should should have taken the next two steps. He didn't. Peter, fourthly, he returned. He cried out to the Lord. Easy thing to do. The enemy, you know, he's like, oh, you can't go to the Lord now. You've made a mess of things. He works both sides of the fence. Hey, go ahead and do it. Yeah, that'd be awesome. And then you do it. He's like, oh, you're horrible. You can't go to God now. You know, and and, and, no, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The only sin he can't forgive is the sin you don't confess. And so Peter, he's like, he returns. And notice, and I love the way that Peter returns, he just cries out to the Lord. And, you know, the enemy might, oh, you got to say, you know, ten Hail Marys and five Our Fathers, and you got to run around, you know what? And this is not, a, you know, a bash on, on, on Catholicism. It's just the human nature is I got to do something, I got to do more, I got to, I've, I've, you know, made God upset or what? No, here's the deal Peter's prayer is Jesus' help. And sometimes that's the most effective prayer that you could ever pray in your life. I made a mess of things. Lord, help. The return. Lord, help. And what happens then? The recovery. Peter was rescued by the Lord. Now, Saul does the same things in regards to the first three things. He doesn't do the return. He doesn't do the recovery. But he certainly sinks to such an extent that what's he do? Well, he offers the sacrifice himself. And here's the problem with that. It not only is a huge mistake, it's very sinful because in God's dealing with Israel, he had established that no king should, should also be a priest. And, and basically, he said, look, the offices of prophet, priest, and king, they, they, they should not be combined together in one man. That is reserved for one person only. And who is that? Jesus Christ. He's prophet, priest, and king. And so what happened is, well, Saul, he stepped into something. He's already the king. He is not the priest, and he steps in to make this sacrifice, and it is, it is sinful. He has no business doing that. He has company in this regard. In Second Chronicles 26, it tells us that King Uzziah did the same thing. And, and here's the crazy thing. King Uzziah was a godly man. He's the, he was a godly king. He was the one that Isaiah talked about. In the, king, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. I mean, King Uzziah was a righteous dude, and all of a sudden, he got all full of himself, and he decided, no, not only am I going to be king, but I'm also going to be priest, and I'm going to go in, and I'm going to make the sacrifice. And the priests of his day, they tried to talk him out of it. They're like, don't do that. That's not right. They actually had to fight him to have him not do that. And in the midst of their wrestling with the guy, the Lord struck King Uzziah with leprosy. 
And they realized it, and everybody was like, you're out of here, and they, they toss him out, and it was God's judgment coming down. Dude, you had no business. You've just crossed a line. You had no business doing that. And we find out, man, King Uzziah, man, he was cut off from the house of the Lord, and he lived in ex- exile for the rest of his life, unable to continue his duties. And this is exactly what's going to happen to Saul. And this is what Samuel says to him. Look, you're going to be cut off. So Saul was complacent. He took credit. He focused on his circumstances. And by the way, before I move on, let me just finish it with that. <clears throat> Are you focusing on your circumstances today? Just write that down. Take a walk with it. Am I focused on my circumstances or am I focused on my Savior? Finally, Saul made excuses instead of making a confession. Verse 10. First Samuel 13.10. Now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. Now, this in the original language is, is outrageous because what it means is that Saul actually went out to offer his blessing. So he went out, the priest would be the one that would offer the blessing, and so he is so audacious here in stepping out of his bounds and over the boundary that not only does he offer the sacrifice, but now the priest shows up and he's like, oh, hey, priest who blesses people, let me bless you. And, and probably a bit of, of pride and anger within Saul. Like, look, if you'd have been on time, you could have been here. But since you weren't, you know, you're out of a job. Knock, knock. Who's there? Not you anymore kind of thing. And he's got this attitude. And, and so he goes out to greet him. And Samuel said, verse 11, what have you done? Saul said, well, when, when I saw the people were scattered from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, Then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal, and I've not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled, and I offered a burnt offering. Saul's going, hey, you know, gosh, the people were, they were all scattering, and you weren't coming around, and the enemy was coming down, and what else could I do, kind of thing. And Samuel said to to Saul, verse 13, you've done foolishly, you're a fool. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people. But you've not kept what the Lord commanded you. He says the Lord is seeking out somebody who's a man after his own heart. Who's he talking about? He's talking about David. Here's the thing. At this point, David hasn't even been born yet. God is on the throne. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's like, look, you could add the throne if you would have been obedient, but you weren't. So you're out, and I'm going to bring somebody else in. Right now, I'm fashioning him in his mother's womb. He's going to be born, man after, after my own heart. Verse 15, then Samuel arose, and he went up from Gelgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people present with him, about 600 men. My, how the mighty have fallen. Saul made excuses instead of making a confession. That's the idea here. Benjamin Franklin said this. He said, I never knew a man who was good at making excuses who was good at anything else. See, Saul has lots of excuses. He's he's all over the map here. He's like, you know, it's the people's fault. It's your fault. It's the Philistines' fault. It's God's fault. Everything is everybody else's fault. 
Maybe you're in that position today. Maybe you're in a position where, you know, you're making excuses when you should be making a confession. And maybe the Lord's just speaking to your heart today and he's like, look, you're the man. See, this happens in David. Even David, the man after God's own heart. This happened in his life. Where God shows up and, and what happens now, Saul, he's a guy, he, he got all the circumstances, get him off track, and he sinned against the Lord, and now he's in this place, and Samuel shows up, he's like, what on earth, man? And his response, nothing, nothing. He, he, didn't, he didn't respond to it at all. David, what we're going to see in 2 Samuel when we get there, probably in 2016, um, what we'll see is that David falls into sin. You guys know the story. Sins, uh, you know, commits adultery with Bathsheba. He kills her husband trying to get away with it. God's like, not having it. And, uh, and so Nathan, the prophet, who's, who's taken Samuel's place at that time, he shows up, he calls David on his sin, tells him this story that, that's similar to what's going on, and he's like, oh, here's what happened, this guy, this rich guy, he stole this one guy's little lamb and sacrificed it for his company, you know, he had all these other lambs, but he sold it, and he's like, oh, David the shepherd is outraged, that man should be killed, and Nathan's like, you're the, you're the man, you did this, because you stole Uriah's wife, you know, here you're the king, you can have whatever you want. You had to take the, the one thing that you shouldn't have taken. And David's response in that moment, he, he, it was immediate repentance. I've sinned against the Lord. And because he repented, God did not strike him dead. Now, he, there were some consequences that he had to suffer through. And when we make sinful decisions, sometimes you have to live through the consequences. But here's the point, and I just close on this. Some of you, you know, you're looking at this anatomy of a disaster and you're seeing these steps that Saul took towards the collapse of his kingdom and maybe for some of you, you're like, well, I've taken a few of those steps myself. And maybe, you know, for you today, you're going, oh, geez, that, that last one, I just, I, I haven't confessed. I haven't confessed. And, and, and that's the issue for David, man, or for, for Saul. You know, you're in this situation, and instead of making a confession, you're making excuses. And, Saul, or, and the Lord would say to you, perhaps today, quit making excuses. It's not the people. It's not this. It's not that. It's not that you get to the place where you go, oh, I was compelled to do this. Like Saul said, no. Confess that you've sinned. 